Psalm 26. We are going to cover four psalms tonight. Not because I want to power through four psalms, but as we go through this, I think you'll see we get to uh, look into four dynamics of faith. Four different angles of the faith of David and how he expresses it in these psalms. And I'm very pumped up about this. I'm very excited to, to share this with you because the, the dynamics of faith, I, I believe, will encourage your faith. I know it has mine over the last week or so. So Psalm 26, you're going to want to lay a finger there and also open up to 2 Samuel 21. We're going to spend some time there tonight as well. In fact, it's going to be back and forth for a couple of the psalms uh, to 2 Samuel 21. And the reason is that rabbinical tradition tells us this psalm was written at a time when Israel was in a three-year season of famine and hardship. The rabbis tie Psalm 26 to this occasion in 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. I'll tell you what, before I read that, let me just ask the Lord again to bless our study. Father, tonight, we are pleased to be here, Lord, glad to be gathered together again after a short hiatus, but it felt like a long time, Father. It's good to be back in this place. Good to be back with with Bibles open and our hearts ready to receive and to be fed, Father. Sometimes in our lives we can wander into seasons of famine. Lord, we know the prophet Amos prophesied of a time of famine, a famine for the Word, where people would go to all the ends of the earth looking and searching and, and unable to find the Word because, Lord, we have not been in the Word. I pray, Father, that this prophecy would never, ever take place at the bridge. Father, I pray the church would return to your word. I pray, Father, you would bless us with this great truth. And feed us tonight, Lord. We have a feast before us. Fill us up. Fill up our hearts. Father, our minds, our spirits, even our bodies tonight, may we be energized by the things we're about to hear. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us and taking us beyond what what mere words can do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Samuel 21 and verse 1 says, There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. Now, David sought the presence of the Lord. This, is, this famine is taking place. The uh, Israelites are in recession. You know, a deep recession. And there is no food and there are no crops and things are not going well. And David, I love this, has the presence of mind to seek the Lord about it. To ask God, why is this going on? How often do we, in our times, when facing natural so-called disasters, how often do we pause and approach the Lord and say, Lord, why is this happening? Oh, how wonderful it would be if in the halls of Congress, rather than trying to crunch numbers, there were knees bent in prayer. Father, why are we in the state that we're in? Why is the world turning the way it's turning? And for us as well. That when we hit these times of famine, these times of emptiness, these times of not really knowing what direction to go, for us to pause like David and to say, Lord, what's up? What are you doing here? What can I learn through this? This is the occasion for Psalm 26. And you can go back there now. And again, keep that finger in 2 Samuel 21. We'll be back. But in Psalm 25, there's a reason we see the faith of David in Psalm 26. And that is that in Psalm 25, David prayed for the instruction of the Lord. We studied that on Sunday. 
Psalm 25 is a prayer where David, David is just saying, Instruct me in your ways, O Lord. Make me know your ways, your paths, your truths. Well, that's Psalm 25. When we get to Psalm 26, we see the result of that instruction. And that is faith. For the famine that's plaguing Israel, David takes directly to the Lord. Now I wonder if at that time when David took this to the Lord, when he prayed to the Lord, if there were any advisors, any counselors who were saying, how can you be sure, David, that God is listening? What makes you think He's going to respond? What makes you think this has anything to do with Him? And David could answer that because he's had a lifetime of instruction in the Lord of being taught by the Lord. He has lived under the teaching of God his whole life. And so David had, and you might know this, we'll look at four dynamics of faith tonight. David had a famine-proof faith. A famine-proof faith. And Psalm 26 is very likely the inquiry of David to the Lord. You know, 2 Samuel 21 tells us that David inquired of the Lord. Well, here it is, the rabbis believe, Psalm 26. He says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now understand about David, for him to say, I have walked in integrity, he is not saying boastful things, he's not being proud or arrogant, he's connecting his integrity to his faith in the Lord. I've trusted in the Lord, he says, without wavering. It's not, faith is not hoping against hope. As so many people think it is. Well, I'm going to believe this. You know, I'm going to take a shot. Uh, it's not wishful thinking. That's not faith. Now, somehow, and I don't know about you, but I believed that for a long time. That faith was just that thing that we that we muster. You know, and boy, if we're right, it'll be great. And if we're not, oh well. You know, bummer. That's not faith. That's not faith. Again, that's wishful thinking. The faith that God instructs is grounded in truth. It's grounded in full assurance. David is fully assured. He's not boastful. He's not arrogant. In the same way that we can be fully assured. Listen, I'm, I'm convinced of this. To walk in the Lord, to have faith in Jesus Christ, is to be fully assured of the truth. To know, first of all, that you're saved. You're going to heaven. To know without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is in my life. His hand is on me. He will provide. He does provide. He takes care Yes, hard times happen, struggles come before me, but, but I know the Lord's with me. Now see, that's faith. It's not faith to say, well, I, you know, I hate to bother the Lord. I know He's busy in other places in the world right now. You know, I just don't know if He's really... I know He's with that person because I see the way that person's life is going, but apparently He's not with me. That's not faith. Faith is absolutely being sure. What did the Hebrew writer said? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And the Hebrew writer says this about our faith in Jesus. He says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, Hebrews 3.6, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Paul said, if I boast in anything, it will be about the cross of Jesus Christ. I do have cause to boast in Jesus. Now understand, there's a difference. I'm not boasting in my faith. David is not boasting in his faith. He's boasting in the Lord. His boast, his integrity, his assurance, is because he says, I have trusted in the Lord. He says, without wavering. And you might make a note of this. That phrase, without wavering there, it is, I do not slide. I like that. 
I have trusted in the Lord and I do not slide. Our boast is in Jesus. And that should tell us something that who we believe is of greater importance than how we believe. Who we believe is what matters, not how so much. There are all kinds of beliefs out there, all kinds of quote-unquote faiths in our world. You've heard the old stupid joke, everyone believes in something, I believe I'll have another beer. I mean, that joke is kind of self-telling. There are all kinds of dumb faiths in the world. People saying, well, I believe in this, or I believe in that. And it's getting weirder. Have you noticed that? People are believing in stranger and odder and weirder things all the time. The pantheist believes that God is in everything. The water and the trees and the air that we breathe is God. That's the pantheist. The evolutionist believes, has faith, that our existence came out of a series of random, unintelligent events. You have to have faith to believe that. The agnostic believes we need inf- more information before we can believe anything. You know? But it gets weird out from there. And I know in the workplace and among friends and people that you know, there's, there's more and more just odd beliefs cropping up, a sign of the times in which we're living. But when it's all said and done, there's only one truth. There only ultimately can be one truth. And that truth is Jesus Christ. I am the truth, he said. He is a solid, solid rock on which we believe. In fact, when David says, I I believe, I have trusted in the Lord, I do not slide. He doesn't slide because his foot foot is, is sunk into the rock of the nature of Jesus Christ. Of the nature of God. He's not going to slide because he believes in God and God is not going to allow him to slide. That's faith. David goes on in verse 2. He says, Examine me, O Lord, and try me and test my heart and my mind. Like any great leader, David's taking responsibility. I'm just going to let it go. He is. He's taking responsibility. David is saying, look first at me, Lord. We're having a famine in the land, but I'm asking you, examine me, try me, test my mind and my heart. Let's start there. Because if there's something wrong here, that needs to get right. Perhaps I'm the reason for the famine. Let's start with me. I love that about David. He says, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I've walked in your truth. I don't sit with deceitful men, David writes. Nor will I go with pretenders, that's hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. Verse 8, he says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. That is a famine-proof faith. A faith that takes responsibility that says, start with me. A faith that goes directly to the Lord when things aren't going right. A faith that does not depend on my ability to believe, but it depends on the one in whom I believe. Which is why David says, test me, but then immediately he turns right back to the Lord and starts talking about his character. It's your loving kindness. I've walked in your truth. My life has been about you. It's a great faith. Now David's integrity of faith, gang, didn't come from within himself, but from knowing he could trust the Lord implicitly. Wow. 
how did David know he could trust the Lord implicitly? Well, how many giants do you have to slay before you start to realize there's something more powerful than you going on? How many battles do you have to win and survive before you start to think, huh, perhaps God really is in this? There is a lesson for that in our lives. The fact that we are sitting here living and breathing tonight. How many times does God have to rescue us, Don? (laughs) How many times? I say, point out Don, because he's sitting here cancer-free. How many times do we have to see the power of God, the rescue of God in our lives, before we, like David, begin to say, He really is here. He really is someone I can sink my faith into, a rock on whom I can stand. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Firm until the end. My faith is not in my muster, it's in my master. Okay? It's not what I generate. It's who He is. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. And so David faithfully takes the famine directly to the Lord. But when he does it, he learns something shocking. That this famine over Israel truly didn't have anything to do with himself. Back in 2 Samuel 21, David sought the presence of the Lord. Verse 1, the second half of the verse says, And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. Track this story. It's fascinating. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and of Judah. Now see, the background of the Gibeonites, very quickly, all the way back when the sons of Israel came into Israel, came into the land under the leadership of Joshua, the Gibeonites disguised themselves because they realized these Israelites were wiping everybody out. And they didn't want to be wiped out. So they disguised themselves. They made their clothes look old. They made their shoes look well-worn. They made sure their bread looked old. And they came marching up and they said, Oh, we're from a foreign land. We're not from here. When in reality they were from right around the corner. And so they deceived the Israelites. And Joshua and the people came to them and they made a covenant of peace. We will not harm you. We won't wipe you out. We will make this covenant with you. And then they discovered the Gibeonites were lying about the whole thing. So what did they do? They honored the covenant. Joshua said, we will honor this because we promised before the Lord that we would not wipe you out. However, from this day forward, you are our servants. And the Gideonites became the servants of Israel. Later on, they would serve in the temple faithfully. A good bunch of people, and they did have a good relationship with the people of Israel. However, Saul comes along... And apparently, and we don't have the history of this anywhere else except the Lord revealing this to David, Saul attempted, in some kind of political fervor, he decided to unilaterally violate this covenant to wipe out the Gibeonites. In verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. We don't have that right. 
And he said, David said, I will do for you whatever you say. Verse 5. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gabeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. It's one of those stories in the Bible that makes you stop and say, Huh? The Gibeonites said, Give us seven men. We will execute them. And in that way, we will feel appeased. We will feel like things have, the justice has been done. This raises a couple of difficult questions. First off, if Saul was the culprit, if he was the one going after the Gibeonites, wanting the mass murder, then why was there famine on the land? If, if it was Saul's fault, why was everybody suffering for it? Well, you know as well as I do, oftentimes we make sin choices and people around us suffer for it. But if you want to be more specific, Numbers chapter 35, verse 33 says, You shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Paul's, uh, Saul is dead now. And God is saying the land is polluted. That's why there's famine. This is the outcome of a sin of a man who who violated my covenantal mindset, violated my law, and so now the land is polluted for it. Blood pollutes the land. And according to God's law, the only way to clean up that pollution was by the blood of the one who shed blood. When Jesus went to the cross... He took the putrid, polluted plague of our sin on His shoulders. And His blood, His blood brought healing to the land. His blood did what this law called for. For all the murder, for all the bloodshed there in the land of Israel that polluted the land, Jesus' blood is that purifying source. 1 John 2, verse 2 tells us He Himself is the propitiation of for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So Saul was the culprit, but there was famine on the land. But the second question is even more personal, more difficult. If Saul was at fault, why does God allow the execution of seven of his grandsons to pay for it? That just doesn't seem right. How is that fair? Well, again, legally speaking, it was completely fair. For legally speaking, and the people of Israel were under the law of God, Exodus 21-23 says, You shall appoint as penalty life for life. How many Gibeonites had Saul killed? We don't really know. We know it was enough for them to sense that they were about to be exterminated. So there was a mass of killing under the hand of Saul. And lawfully speaking, the punishment should have been life for life. We don't know how many Gibeonites Saul killed. We just know he tried to kill them all. There's actually a measure of grace in this that it was only seven people chosen to pay for this sin rather than a whole gaggle of people. David agrees to hand over seven men, seven grandsons of Saul. And watch what happens, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. And the life of Mephibosheth is just a great story of grace. Another teaching for another time. Verse 8. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Armoni, 
who uh, later was known for making suits, and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholotite. And then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now this is interesting. And I'm not going to get all into the explanation of what actually happened here. If you want to dig a little further, you want to follow the teaching, we studied this back in 2 Samuel 21. It's on the website, and the teaching is entitled, The Hand Behind the Famine. So if you want to understand more of what's happening, I encourage you to go listen to this. But there's some insight back in Psalm 26 as to why these seven men were chosen for execution. We see something here. I think there's a thread here, and I can't be absolutely certain about this, but follow this train of thought. Psalm 26 going on in verse 10. David says, Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, whose right hand is full of bribes. Who's he talking about? I submit to you, he's talking about the seven sons of Saul, or these grandsons. What I think David is implying, and if Psalm 26 is in fact David's inquiry of the Lord and the song that he wrote at that time, and he's saying, don't take my soul away with the sinners. What sinners? That is those who are culpable. Don't take my life with the men of bloodshed in whose hands is a wicked scheme, whose right hand is full of bribery. And it may be that through bribes and manipulations that the truth of what Saul was trying to do to the Gibeonites had been suppressed, and these grandsons of Saul were actually complicit in the crime, and therefore guilty of the execution for which they were handed over. Whatever the case, and again, we've got... You know, 3,000 years of history here between us that makes it difficult to know exactly what happened. Whatever the case, as the story ends back in 2 Samuel 21.14, we're told that God was moved by prayer for the land. God was moved. David's prayer. It wasn't the executions that appeased the Lord that would describe a different God. No, God was pleased as David prayed, as the people repented. David's faithful prayer reveals his assurance in his father's provision and care. That is a famine-proof faith. That when things are not going well, when there's not so much by way of food in the cupboard, when you're concerned about the mortgage payment, when you've got a fear about the financial situation in your life, a famine-proof faith is one that takes the words of Jesus literally when he said, Matthew 6.31, Do not worry saying what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing. Now Jesus said this, don't worry about it. He said, the Gentiles, they, they worry about these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now if you're stressed about your financial picture, ask yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe Jesus? God knows my clothing needs. He knows my food needs. He knows my shelter needs. And He will take care of those. And what does He ask me to do? Seek the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be taken care of. Verse 11, Psalm 26 says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. 
Redeem me. Be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. I really like that verse. My foot stands on a level place. In feast or famine, there's one place David loved to stand. One place David wanted to be. And my friends, this is not a metaphor. To stand on a level place. What is he talking about? Back in verse 8. He says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Well, where was that? The Ark of the Covenant. In the tabernacle, David erected there on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And even to this day, there are level places. There's a level place, an exposed area of bedrock, where I believe, personally, the Ark stood with the tabernacle around it. The level place. The place where David said, I would rather be there than anywhere else in the whole world. I would rather be right there where, where the mercy seat of God is. Where God said, I will meet with my people. Oh, David says, my feet stand on a level place. A firm place. Where does the Lord meet with His people today? Christ is our mercy seat. And Jesus said these words, He said, John 14, 23, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. My heart becomes a level place. A place that's firm. It's not rocky, it's not shaky, it's not somewhere from which I'm going to slide. I stand in that level place. In the presence of Jesus who has made His home in my heart. And that is no metaphor, gang. It is a promise. It's a reality as sure as the bedrock on the Temple Mount. That if you will love the Lord, He's going to love you. And He's going to reside within. But there's another level place. He promises to meet us as well. David says, My foot stands on a level place in the congregations. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. That phrase, in the congregations, is not vague, it's not a spiritual thing. David is speaking Hebrew here. It's an actual gathering place. Yes, it's spiritual, but also locational. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. Jesus said, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there, in their midst. Matthew 18.20 When the congregation gathers, you know, we touch on this from time to time, but there is something absolutely critical in the faith life of a follower of Jesus Christ about being in the congregation about being in the fellowship, in fellowship with other believers, yes, but also gathered together, congregating, assembling to worship the Lord together, to share in God's Word together, to fellowship and pray and love on one another. You might note this, this is kind of a a little secondary thing under a famine-proof faith, that the congregation builds up faith. Congregation builds up faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's been three weeks since last we met. And I want to tell you honestly, I have been so blessed by the groanings. There have been a lot of groaning. Not, not in a negative way. I've heard more people. It, just, it blew me away. 
More people coming up on a Sunday or leaving messages on my answering machine or sending emails going, oh, it just seems like forever. When are we going to be back? When can we get back to Wednesday night? I'm hating this, you know. John's saying, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, I got this picture of John just wandering his house aimlessly on Wednesday nights. And he has to talk to his wife on top of that. You know, the, the first century church was so passionate about their assembly. They loved being together because it built them up. They, they realized and think about the trials and the, and the difficulty, the persecution that they were under as this new sect of Judaism that people didn't realize was far more. And they were under that hard time, but it says in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Very, very simple. In fact, right there, Acts 2.42 is the basis for the existence of the church. All, everything else the church does, as far as I'm concerned, is surplus. <coughs> it's superfluous. It's extra. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. If we would focus all of our attention on those four things, man, the church would change the world. And it did, didn't it? Man, that gathering of people, they loved to assemble. There was a clear hunger in the early days of the church. And I just, I pray, in fact, let's do it right now. Lord, we pray that you would stir up this kind of hunger in your church today. A hunger for fellowship, a hunger for assembling, a hunger for togetherness, that we might build up the body of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. David highlights one other thing that I don't want you to miss in our assembling together. One other thing it does. Not only does the congregation build up the family of believers, but the congregation blesses the Lord. He says, In the congregations I shall bless the Lord. Psalm 68, 26. David says, Bless God in the congregations, the Lord of the fountain of Israel. And that right there is enough reason for us to gather together. What, Rick? That the Father loves when His kids get together. Some of you experienced on Father's Day having all your kids around. Those of you who have you know, children and grandkids. And there's nothing like it to, to sit back. It's my favorite day of the year, truly. I like to sit back on the couch. It's the one day that I'm allowed to do nothing. You know, I get to be the master of all I survey. And I sit on the couch and they bring me presents. And they bring me food. And I can watch whatever I want to watch on TV. And I can just vegetate and gain weight over that twelve. It's just great. Our Father loves when His children gather. It blesses the Lord. You want to know what you can do to bless the Lord? Go to church. Just show up. It blesses the Lord when His people assemble together. Now Psalm 26 is a great example of a famine-proof faith. A lesson of faith in time of need. David goes directly to the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. God is his rock on whom he stands, that level place. And a famine-proof faith tends to breed the next kind of faith. Psalm 27 is a fearless faith. A fearless faith. Why does a famine-proof faith breed a fearless faith? Because when I know God's taking care of the food, I can focus on the fight. And that's the deal here. Watch this. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Oh, this sounds of the stuff of a young man. A young David saying, I can take on the world. A young David, perhaps just ready to go off to college, saying, I can do anything. But it's not. It's not. The context of Psalm 27, again, the rabbis tell us, rabbinical tradition, that it's the second half of 2 Samuel 21. What happened there? Well, this is great. Turn back over there. It's years, years later in David's rule. Even years later than the famine. David is now in his 60s or 70s. He is an older man. And... By the way, his mind is writing checks his body can't cash. Watch this, verse 15. When the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down. He's in his late 60s, early 70s. David went down. And his servants with him. And they fought against the Philistines and David became weary. Yeah. (laughs) Then Ishbi Banab, I love that name, who was among the descendants of the giant, that is Goliath, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze, that would be about seven and a half pounds, was girded with a new sword and he intended to kill David. I am going to take care of Papa's revenge, this Ishbi Banab says. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Well, then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. I love this. You're grounded, young man. You're not going to fight anymore. Well, Psalm 27 is apparently the psalm that David wrote in the aftermath of the giant wars. He returns to Jerusalem. He thoughtfully pulls out a reed and a blank scroll and he begins to write. And he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. That's how he starts. I love this. His men are saying, You're the lamp of Israel. We can't have you go out. And David says, The Lord is the light. It's not me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? I'm not the lamp of Israel. He is. Ah, the fearless faith of David. Now some might have heard this, read what he wrote and said, it's not fearless faith, it's foolish faith. This old warrior is just waxing poetic. There's a man who doesn't seem to have the sense to know his limitations anymore. I don't think so. You see, you can take the hardiness out of the warrior, but you cannot take the warrior out of the heart. And David has a warrior heart. And David's back, and yes, Abishai rescued him. But David was down there fighting, and he's just saying, you know what? I got nothing to be afraid of, man. You know, as he's moving over to his bed with his walker, whom shall I fear? <laughs> and I love this. He, he just has a great heart. Even as Ishbi Banov stands over him, ready to strike, David had no fear. David knew something his enemy and apparently his men did not know. This fearless faith. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says, Even though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, or some versions say, the pulling down of strongholds. It doesn't matter if you're in your 70s or if you're in your teens. It doesn't make any difference. You can walk in this fearless faith knowing, man, I'm not fighting a physical war. I fight with the power of God. What am I afraid of in this life? I had a conversation with a couple this last week who are really worried about some stuff. Really worried about some enemy attack. Someone who is out to get them. And the bottom line is, you know, we're not fighting physical battles here. Take your best shot. I have the divine of God the Father, the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within me. His purpose is what matters. And as long as I'm serving His purpose, do whatever you want. If it serves His purpose for me to be taken out by Ishbi Banab or some other giant problem, fine. If it furthers the kingdom. But I will trust in Him. This is David's heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he says, we are destroying speculations. What do you mean speculations? You know, all those things. Well, what if? What if this? What if that? Oh, but but I'm not sure about... Well, I don't know about... Destroy those. Waylay them. Take them out. We're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. I want every thought to be about Him. If i got a problem, I want immediately to be thinking of Him. That's where the fearless faith comes from. Every thought captive to Christ. Now, after the dust of the giant wars settled, his men said to David, no more wars. You can't go out and fight with us anymore, David. We're just not going to allow it. Did that bum out the old warrior? Not in the least. Verse 4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. This is what I want, David says. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. You think you're grounding me? You're sending me right to the place I want to be anyway. Remember Bill Cosby talking about this? Some of you heard this? Where he goes down to fix his kids breakfast. And he gets it all wrong. He's serving them cake. You know, chocolate cake for breakfast and grapefruit juice. And his wife comes down and sees this and sends him to his room and he says, which is where I wanted to be in the first place. (laughs) And that's David here. The men say, you will not go out and fight. And he says, good. That means more time in the temple. More time. Well, not the temple, the tabernacle. The temple wasn't built yet. More time in the presence of the Lord. I don't want to fight anymore anyway. I'd rather be at church, David says. I'd rather be there. He's not afraid to fight, but he joyfully embraces the house of the Lord. Verse 5. For in the day of trouble, he'll conceal me. Now watch this. This is so cool. He'll conceal me in his tabernacle, literally his tent. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. When will he do this? In the day of trouble. If problems come, if trouble arises, if attacks come, it's cool because God's going to hide me. He'll lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. The real joy. It's not in the fighting of the battles. It's in the presence of the Lord. So if you're in a battle, but God is present, you're with Him in the battle, hey, there's joy there. 
if you're outside of the battle, but in the presence of the Lord, man, there's joy there. The presence of the Lord, it, it, it lifts us above the fray. It lifts us above the enemies. And this is good news because, watch this, there's a day coming when we will, like David, be secreted away. When we will be hidden in His tent. Note what he says. He says, the day of trouble, in the day of trouble, He will conceal me in His tabernacle, in the secret place of His tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And what does the Bible tell tell us? 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We who are alive and remain will be caught up. Caught up by who? By Jesus, the rock. He will lift me up on a rock. He will tuck me away in a safe place in the day of worst trouble for planet Earth. I'm going to meet the Lord in the air and I will always be with the Lord. The implications here are wonderful. Are you saying that David's talking about the rapture? I can make a case. (laughs) Literally, David is talking about his own life and himself and where he is with the Lord and the fact that he's lifted above the fray. In fact, anytime you're in the presence of the Lord, you're above the fray. You're above the enemies. The way to go over and above the enemies. Well, verse 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. And when you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. See, other places people are are saying, You're done, old man. Hang it up. David didn't hear that. When they said, You can't go to battle, what did David hear? He heard the voice of the Lord say, Seek my face. Come away with me. Seek my face. And David said, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. To seek his face. There's a time to fight the great battles, but all the more precious to press in to the presence of the Father, to seek His face. Verse 9, Do not hide your face from Me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been My help. Do not abandon Me, nor forsake Me, O God of My salvation. For My father and My mother have forsaken Me, but the Lord will take Me up. Now, David... In the Hebrew, it's not exactly as it sounds. The implication is not that his parents forsook him. It's really if my parents were to forsake If even those who raised me, if even those who love me, my mom and my dad turned their back on me, I know that you won't. That's what he's saying. Even in the worst case scenario of being forsaken by those who are supposed to love me, I know that you, you will take me up. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Man, when Ishibanab stands over him with that great spear ready to kill him, David would have despaired, but he knew he was going to see the Lord again. He knew even if he died in that moment, he would see the Lord in the land of the living. What's he talking about? Resurrection. You can kill my body, but you cannot kill my soul that is in the hands of the Lord, and I will be with Him no matter what you do to me. Fearless faith. And he says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. There it is. More weight training. 
Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. What do I do until He comes? Wait expectantly. Wait on the Lord as a servant. Looking for that day and hoping to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. David says what happens to those who wait on the Lord. He says your heart will be strengthened. You will be encouraged. You'll be strengthened with courage. The old warrior, the fearless faith of David, he gives great advice. You want courage? You want a strong heart? Wait for the Lord by waiting on the Lord. And quickly answer the phone because who knows who it is calling. (laughs) Psalm 28 deals with another battle. This time it's a civil war in Israel. It's a heartbreaking war. It's a war that's tearing father and son apart. And it's interesting how often this story is backdropped for the Psalms. It's the civil war of Absalom against David. That's the context. His own son raising up an army against him, trying to turn Israel against him. This is not a famine-proof faith that you're about to read. It is not a fearless faith. No, it is, number three, a forfeiting faith. A forfeiting faith. Watch this. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. In the Hebrew, holy sanctuary there is Kodesh Dabir. It's literally your holy innermost or the holy of holies. David says, I am lifting my hands to the holy of holies. The Bible talks a lot about lifting up hands. In fact, there are many different implications of lifting up hands. We lift our hands joyfully, worshipfully. We lift our hands thankfully and prayerfully. But this is a different kind of lifting of hands. This is, perhaps you've done it. (laughs) How personal do I want to get here? There are some times where smaller people who live in my house cause me to lift my hands in a completely different way. I'm not talking about spankings either. I'm talking about... (sighs) I give up. I just give up. It's like I've tried everything. i got nothing left. It's lifting hands in forfeit. It's lifting hands that are empty. David, at this point, he, he has his own son is going head-to-head with him. His own son is betraying him. And David, he, as he's lifting his hands to the Holy of Holies, it, it's a... i got nothing to do here. i got nothing to give. I, I'm empty, Lord. It's a forfeiting faith. A faith that just gives up. Because there's nothing else I can do. Jeremiah writes of this kind of faith in the book of Lamentations. Chapter 3, verse 39, he says, Why should any living mortal, any man, offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine ourselves and probe our ways. Let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and our hands toward heaven. Toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not pardoned. Jeremiah is saying, we're lifting up our hands. It's not thankful. It's not worship. You know, it's not joyful. It's just lifting up our hands saying, we got nothing. Our hands are empty, Lord. We have sinned. We have not received pardon. We are empty and fallen before You. And so we lift up our hands to You. 
And this is the place that David is at. He says in verse 3 of Psalm 28, Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity and who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. He's talking about betrayal. Verse 4, Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. Verse 5, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of His hands... He will tear them down and not build them up. David mentions three sets of hands here. Notice this. In verse 2, My hands lifted to the Holy of Holies. My hands lifted in a forfeiting faith. Verse 4, Their hands that are busy practicing evil. And verse 5, His hands, the hands that will tear down evil. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And if you're going to lift up your hand, do not lift it up to do evil. You'll lift it up to the Lord. Whatever your circumstance, whether it be worship or joy or praise or thanksgiving or even you got nothing left, lift up your hands to the Lord for it is His hands that will make it all right. That's a forfeiting faith. It's when you just resign yourself to the Lord. And as you lift up your hands, you go above the work of the enemy, seeking the justice of the Lord. Giving it up, giving it over. Verse 6. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank Him. David turns on a dime here. In one moment, despair, empty hands, lifted up. I don't know what to do. And in the next, he just goes, ah, those, those empty hands now are full of thanksgiving. Why? Because he knows his prayer was heard. He's not even done praying yet! <laughs> yeah, forfeiting faith says, I know that when I get to that place where I'm at the bottom of the barrel and I give it up to the Father, I know He hears I know He's there. And I bless His name because of it. David assumes he's, he's already helped. He's not forfeiting to the enemy, but he's forfeiting all control, all power over his life, just forfeiting it, giving it up to the Father. And David even takes it a step further. Verse 8. David says, The Lord is their strength. And He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. And these last two verses are incredibly poignant. Picture David saying these things as he's heading up over the Mount of Olives, looking back over his shoulder at Jerusalem, the city that he loves, at people wandering through the streets, the people of Israel that he loves, knowing his son is usurping the throne, He's running for his life and he looks over his shoulder and he says, Lord, you're their strength. Save your people. Bless, Lord, your inheritance. Be their shepherd. David was the shepherd of Israel. David was supposed to be king. The people were his responsibility. But he's in a place where he realizes he can't even shepherd the people of Israel. So not only is he forfeiting himself to the Lord, he has to forfeit everything. He gives it up. Even those for whom he has felt most keenly responsible. 
He hands them over to the Lord. To the care and the shepherding of God. Let me ask you this. Who is it in your life that you need to forfeit control of to the Lord? Who in your life do you just need to say, God, I, I can't. There's nothing I can do to help this, this son, this daughter. I, I, I've tried with my sister. She won't listen to reason. I have to forfeit. I have to give her up to you. I, I've asked my parents again and I've tried with my dad. He won't listen. Who do you have to give up? We hold on. No, no, I want to be the one to, to save it. You're not going to be the one to save that person. Even if you happen to speak the right words, it's still the Spirit of God doing the saving. It's still the shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd who will do the saving. It's not you. Who do you need to give up? Corey and Hannah are both leaving for college in the fall, and it's killing me. <laughs> And I just want to give you a warning. If you have kids leaving for college or leaving home, don't go see Toy Story 3. <laughs> because in it, Andy leaves home. I'm at the end of the movie. It's a cartoon and I'm going... <laughs> it's terrible! He gets in the car, drives off down the road. They're cleaning the room. I'm like going... Oh! You know what? 18, 20, respectively. i got to give them up. I love them. They'll always have a place. They'll always have a home. But the time comes where you, you have to give them up to the Lord. You have to say, look, I, I tried. I wasn't the greatest shepherd, but I was there. You know. And now i got to entrust them to the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. And that's what David's doing here. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing, this... This forfeiting faith, a faith that is so rock solid in the Lord that even when you have nothing to give, you can at least hand it back to the Lord. And that's what He does here. Jesus said in Luke 10.22, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. I really like that. Because that means not only am I handing it over to God and His greatness and His majesty and authority. No, it's been given to Him. If I give it to Him, He just hands it right to Jesus. And then Jesus can look you, look me in the eye and say, I've got it. I've got it. Just trust me. Who do you need to forfeit control over to the Lord? Who do you need to hand off to Him? Fourth kind of faith. Here as we come to the end, Psalm 29. We've seen a a fearless faith and a forfeiting faith and a famine-proof faith, number four. I like this. A faith in the fury. A faith in the fury. Now, I love a good storm. You know, I love when it really starts to shake and rumble and rock and the wind goes and the, and the rain comes down. But I'll tell you, I've never seen a storm like we saw in Jerusalem and I've shared this before. That last day in Jerusalem, a couple of trips back, unbelievable. And Jerusalem can boast some fierce, fierce storms. Gale force winds, torrential downpours, snow, ice, hail, lightning, thunder, and all in a single hour. Where did David reside? City of David, Jerusalem. David saw those storms. And where other people might be freaked out, running to hide in their homes. I can, I can just imagine David, the storms hit. 
I mean, it's just blowing and roiling and, and the water's coming down and it's pounding his courts and David's just standing out there just going, yeah, God is awesome. God is amazing. And a wild stormy day in the city of David is the inspiration, I'm convinced, for this psalm, Psalm 29. It's a great contrast, by the way, to Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8 is the psalm in the dark of night when the stars are out and it's quiet and calm and clear and beautiful. And David can see into the heavens. And he writes about that in Psalm 8. Here in Psalm 29, you can't see anything because it's just so wild. Thunder shaking and lightning cracking. And David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array, literally in His holy array. What holy array? The wild storm. The thunderclouds, the lightning. This is the array of the Lord, David says. He says in verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, and the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, and Zerion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire, or it could be translated lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says glory. Now the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Now you Bible students remember, just to refresh your memory, in the book of Job, thunder is mentioned seven times. We talked about this. It's interesting that number comes up because here in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord thunders seven times. You can count it. Every time it says the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, just to underline it counts seven times in this psalm. Now, Vincent Word Studies explains that the Jews of the first century often referred to thunder as the seven voices. The seven voices of God. Because when it thundered and shook, they thought of, they went to this psalm, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord. Interesting because Revelation chapter 10, verse 3 says, When the angel had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Revelation 10.4, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, John says, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. You don't tell what you just heard, John. Why is that? Well, because what was spoken, God did not intend to have heard until it will be heard during the tribulation. Then it's, it's for those people at that time. But the connection here is interesting between Psalm 29, which John would have known, Revelation 10, it indicates the seven voices of thunder are the voice of the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. Now let me give you one more reason for believing that. Psalm 29, literally for centuries before Jesus came, is the psalm that was read on the first day of a certain feast in Israel. The feast is called Shavuot, Pentecost. This psalm, read on the day of Pentecost, what happened that day? 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Oh, notice this, verse 7. What does David write? The voice of the Lord hews out or divides flames of fire. And what happened at Pentecost? The flames of fire were divided and rested there above each of the apostles as the Holy Spirit filled them and they began to speak literally in languages of all the people gathered there. People began to come around. They heard the noise. What's going on? And as they listened to the apostles speak and preach the gospel of Jesus, they were all hearing in their own language. Fantastic. Because the Holy Spirit was speaking. Seven voices. The Holy Spirit of the living God. And what Job indicates, and what David saw in this storm, detailing the seven voices, what the Jewish people called the seven voices, and even what the apostles experienced there on Pentecost, what John declares in Revelation is simply this, God is in the fury of the storm. David saw God there. The seven thunders indicating God is there in the storm. David even says in verse 10, that the Lord sat at the flood. Gather that picture in your mind. The flood. The worst storm in the history of man. In all of earth's history, the flood was the big one. The only time there has been a worldwide torrential downpour and uppour, the Bible tells us not only did the rain come from above, it came from underneath as the channels of the seas were burst open. Water just going both ways a wild incredible storm and David said God sat in authority over that the world coming apart at the seams but God was in control in the midst of that storm you know on a much smaller but not less important note when your world is coming apart at the seams guess who is in control who is in the midst of what may seem a furious storm God is there. When your little world, when my little world feels like it's coming apart, God sits in authority. Am I going to submit faith in the fury? Trust in the Lord. As David does, he's looking out and he's just, you can almost see him enjoying this incredible storm and worshiping God and praising Him. Will you worship God in the fury of the storm? In the late 1940s, an artist began to paint pictures of Christ, portraits. Very cool. In fact, you probably saw several of these. You'd probably recognize them. His name is Warner Salmon. You can still buy his, his prints online in different places. But my favorite one that he painted now sits framed on a shelf in our living room. The title of the portrait is Christ, Our Pilot. It, it pictures a young man, and, and he's very much a young man of the late 40s, early 50s. I mean, the way he's dressed, the way he looks, he looks like a guy right out of the 50s, you know, a strapping young lad. Certainly just got his, you know, straight out of the Boy Scouts. Got his Eagle Scout, I'm sure. And he, but he's at the helm, and he's holding on. And all around this great ship, you see massive just waves and storm and rain coming down. It's obviously a furious storm. The young man's there holding on to the wheel and he's got a look of of absolute certainty on his face and standing right behind him with his hands on his shoulders with a look even more certain is Jesus. Christ our pilot. I love that picture. 
In the fury of the storm, Christ is there. You remember? Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, having a nap. Apostles are freaking out. We're going down! Lord, we're going down! Wake him up! They pull him up and he's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes and he just goes, hush, be still. The sea is like glass. Totally quiet. Matthew 8.27 tells us the men were amazed. And they said, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. And take a lesson, my friends. The winds and the sea obey Him. Why do you think the furious storm in your life is out of His control? It's not. Faith in the fury. That regardless of circumstance, when the storm hits, well, we have two responses. We can run for cover, or we can recognize Christ our pilot in the storm. By the way, listen. In the context of this raging storm, David writes, verse 11, The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Peace and strength. When when the hurricanes of hardship hit, it's the Lord who provides level ground for a famine-proof faith. When the tempest of giant threats thunder around us. It's the Lord who gives us the strength to stand and fight as He stirs up that fearless faith within us. And when the storms of life will strip the forest bare, when you feel like you've got nothing left, when you have to give up and give over, it is the Lord who brings peace to His people in a forfeiting faith. We just turn the wheel over to the Lord. Because even in the wildest, most raging, torrential deluge in history, the flood, faith in the fury recognizes God is in control. It's His authority. Father, great songs. Great songs. Thank You that You inspired David to write these. And Lord, thank You that we can learn something from his faith. Father, my sense is tonight some of us probably just need to piggyback on David's faith a bit. We need some fearlessness to stand up. Perhaps there's a place in our lives we need to be standing up and speaking Your name more fearlessly and we're just a little timid. Father, I pray You'll bring that encouragement of the warrior heart of David. God, maybe there are those going through famine right now. Severe worry about where the next dollar is going to come from. Would You famine-proof our hearts? Like David, that even in the worst of times, we just trust You. We will take it right back to You, Lord. Father, where we feel like we've got nothing to give, we do. We forfeit believing in You to fight the battle, to go before us, to win. Father, in the fury, I pray that You would increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.